Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. You're listening to the Medical School HQ podcast online at medicalschoolhq.net, session number 14. Hello and welcome back to another session here at the Medical School HQ Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Gray, and we are the podcast about medical school. From the pre-med process through residency, we hope to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. We have another amazing interview for you today. I invited Rohit from thebiopsy.com to talk to us today to share his pre-med path. He's currently in a gap year. He graduated from college last year. He applied like everybody else during the normal time frame, didn't get into med school the first time. He shares during the interview why he thinks that is and is currently working towards that acceptance letter for next year. Rohit blogs at thebiopsy.com. If you haven't read any of his stuff, I encourage you to go over there, take a look at it, read it. He's on Twitter at the biopsy. Go say hi. Tell him you heard about him here at the Medical School HQ podcast. We started the interview today talking about where he is currently on his path to becoming a physician. I just graduated from University of California, San Diego. I studied bioengineering over there with area studies in political science and history. So now I'm in my gap year, and um, I'm waiting to hear back from medical schools that I've applied to. Okay, so you're in a gap year. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is that planned, or was that that just a... Well, I am a re-applicant, so technically, originally, it wasn't uh, planned. Um, But now that I'm in it, I have no problems with it. In fact, before I applied to medical school... I uh, talked to a lot of physicians who I knew, and I asked them, if you could do this all over again, what's one thing that you would do differently? And the majority of them expressed regrets over not taking some time off before entering medical school, because once you enter medical school, it's basically four years of schooling, and then you know three to seven years of schooling after that. So it's kind of a nonstop journey. 
So they they said, we hope that you take some time off. So I, I took their advice and took a gap year. Okay. So uh, that's great advice, taking a year off. I took three years off, so uh, I, I definitely know the benefits of taking some time off and, and learning what it's like to live out in the real world and not be a student for a little while. I think that's beneficial. Mm-hmm. But you didn't do it out of out of choice. You did it because you reapplied. So let, let's talk about why you had to reapply. So sure. you, I'm assuming... You're a traditional pre-med student. Were you always pre-med? No, in fact, I wasn't pre-med. Uh, going into college, uh, becoming a doctor was the last thing on my mind. Um, the concept of you know another four years of schooling, like I said before, d- did not appeal to me. My parents, they wanted me to become a doctor, but I said, no, thank you. So um, the first two years of college, uh, the first two years of college, I should say, I was just bioengineering. I thought I was going to go get a master's degree and just enter industry and that'd be my story. But then um, halfway through college, I started volunteering in a hospital. And the reason why I started volunteering was because I wanted to get a better understanding of how bioengineering could augment clinical practice. So I went to go look around and see what kind of tools doctors were using and how I could improve them. Um, so I, I went in with that kind of bioengineering mindset until the, the one day a nurse came up to me and she said, hey, Rohit, can you go take a uh, look at this patient? Um, I'm too busy and I can't handle his requests right now. So I went in and this was my first patient encounter. I'd never done it before. And I was really nervous. So I went in, I introduced myself. I'm like, my name's Rohit. I'm a volunteer here. How can I help you? And he looks at me and he's, he's an old man. He's very grumpy, and he's sitting in his, the corner of the room with his robes all disheveled, and he looks at me and says, I've been here for four days, and no one's gotten me a newspaper yet. I read my newspaper every day, and I have not gotten it yet. So I was like, okay, sir, let me go, let me go see what I can do for you. So I go outside, and the nurse is right there. I ask her, like, is, is there a newspaper form that I could get for him? And uh, she says, no, newspapers are not standard care plan material. So I was like, okay. So I go downstairs outside the uh, hospital and go to a newspaper stand, buy a copy of the New York Times to come back up. And the moment I hand this guy the newspaper, his eyes just light up and all that grumpiness disappears. He starts saying, thank you, thank you. You have no idea what this means to me. And uh, he proceeds to tell me his life story and his medical history. And I'm just standing there saying, yes, yes. And then at the end of it all, I say, is there anything else I can do for you? And he looks at me and says, no, no, you've done so much already. And uh, that's when I walk out. And I, and I remember I walked out of that room and I felt so happy, so ecstatic. I had never felt that happy in my life. Not when I had gotten a good SAT score, not when I had gotten to college, like nothing stacked up to it. So that's when I realized if I could feel that good, just giving a patient a newspaper, how good could I feel them? How could I, how good could I feel if I had given them a second chance at a healthier life? or um, help them lead a healthier life in general. So that's when it kind of clicked for me that medicine would be for me. And then afterwards, I started pursuing all the traditional pre-med activities that we, that we do. And where were you in your schooling at that point? Uh, that was halfway through my sophomore year. Okay, so still pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at that point, you put the brakes on and go, okay, I want to I wanna be pre-med. Mm-hmm. Who did you reach out to or what resources did you reach out to 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 figure out what you needed to do next? Sure. Um, Let's see. Who did I reach out to? 
I think it was a lot of it was a lot of internal reflection. Like, do I really want to go through those four years? <laughs> I um, I also talked That's to my good. parents. <laughs> yeah, first you want to be you know self assured that you want to do this. Um, after that, I reached out to my parents. I got their thoughts on it. And of course, they were ecstatic because that's what they wanted from me all along. So they weren't the most unbiased of people. I, um, I, talked, to, I talked to my counselor, in, like the academic counselor in your college. And I asked her, like, do you think this is a good idea? She looks at me and she's like, you know, you're, you're a bioengineer. It's going to be hard for you to get into medical school because the GPAs are so high for medical school and for engineering, you know, because it's so much tougher, your GPA is not going to be as competitive as theirs. So you have to think twice about, you know, pursuing this with your major. So for a while I was wondering, should I switch out of bioengineering and go into something like biochemistry or just general bio, like a lot of pre-meds do. Uh, But then I decided like, I like the challenge of bioengineering um, because I had taken some bio classes before, um, and relative to my um, bioengineering classes, those bio classes were relatively easy. So I was like, okay, I'll stick with bioengineering and take the bio classes. And that's kind of when I, that's kind of what happened, I guess. Okay. I, it was more, more self-assurance than reaching out. Okay. And it was afterwards when I decided to become pre-med, that's, that's when I started making more contacts within the medical community and asking them what you know, your experience was in medical school. And then it kind of, my motivation for medical school then started slowly augmenting as the years went on. Great. So you had your initial experience with the the grumpy guy that needed to read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Apparently his insurance didn't cover it. (laughs) Um, How did you get more traditional shadowing experience? Sure. If you did. Um, One of my friends was actually pre-med, or is pre-med, I should say. And uh, he had shadowed a few doctors beforehand. And I told him when I told him I wanted to, I'm going pre-med. Um, I think after he was done shadowing them, he said, you know, I know you're looking for some people to shadow. So why don't I get in contact with the people I shadowed and hand you off to them? And it was perfect because he had shadowed an anesthesiologist and a surgeon and uh, he just gave me their contact info. I called them and boom, it was done. And uh, they said, come in on this such and such day, this such and such time. And it just worked, worked out like that. And then I also shadowed a primary care physician who actually used to be my old primary care physician. So I got, I got to see it from the patient's side and from the, the physician's side. And reaching out to him was dead simple. All I did was call his office, leave a message, and within two days he called back and said, I'd love to have you. So Did, did you call with the, the premise of, hey, I used to be your patient, Would, can, I, can I come shadow you? <laughs> is, well, is that thinking, your door, like the, the foot in the door? I was hoping that that would give me a little bit of an advantage. Um, but it also helped that he wasn't a major academic physician. Okay. You know, I, like coming from uh, UCSD, which is a major uh, medical a- academic medical center, everyone's used to going to UCSD's medical center and shadowing doctors there. And while that ha- does have advantages, I also think that it's not as easy to get shadowing positions with them because they're already teaching residents and uh, medical students. So they already have their plates full. My uh, old primary care physician, he's a private, he has a private practice, so he doesn't get that many people who come in. So I knew, one, that I know he knows me from a long time ago, but two, that he didn't have his hands full. So I knew I could get in the door relatively easy. And I didn't see anything less because of it. Okay. That's, that's a great point. The, the private practice, more the community physician's 
aren't going to be burdened with residents and medical students. So they have a little bit more time with you. And what I always talk about is building relationships so that you have that one-on-one time with them so you can build that relationship and ultimately, hopefully, get a, a killer letter of recommendation. Exactly. As exactly. well as getting more personal time with you and the patient so he can explain a little bit more for you yeah. um, just to, to get with you. Cool. Okay. So you're shadowing, you're taking the, the pre-med classes that you need, continuing to kind of be your engineering uh, major. Mm-hmm. You take the MCAT. How did you do on the MCAT? Uh, I got a 33 on the MCAT. Not bad. How, did you uh, take a prep course? Yes, I did. I took a Kaplan course. Okay. Did you choose um, Kaplan over Princeton Review for any reason? Uh, Kaplan was there. UCSD um, has like a general center for students, and Kaplan has its own office right on campus. So it's convenient. Okay. Convenience. That works. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you g- great on the MCAT. You stuck with uh, biomedical engineering, and you were warned, be, be careful with your GPA. How did you end up with your GPA? Uh, my GPA was a 3.681. As a cumulative? Cumulative. And what about your science? My you science, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Okay. I think it's like 3.36 three, or something. Okay, so pretty competitive. Yeah. So you applied. Why didn't you get in the first time? So the first time I applied was obviously like most pre-meds do during your junior year or at the end of your junior year. And um, I applied to a good number of schools and I filled out all the secondaries and I did not get a single interview. It was pretty much my entire application cycle was pretty much a donation to the medical community. And uh, I called all the schools that I could asking like, why didn't I get in or why did I at least not get an interview? Um, and a lot of them said, you know, you have good activities, you have good scores, et cetera, but you applied really late. The problem with my application cycle the first time was that I applied in mid-August, whereas the, uh, the application itself opens up in June. So I, I guess I wasted a lot of time basically preparing my personal statement and letters of rec when I should have been doing that much earlier uh, before the uh, application opened. So that was pretty much the main concern that most of the medical schools told me. Okay. And, and for people listening, if you don't understand why that is, it's because medical schools have rolling admissions. They see their first batch of interviewees, and they're deciding right then and there, are we going to accept these people or not? And they're sending out acceptances really early on. They're not waiting until the last day of the application cycle to say, okay, who are we out of everybody that we've interviewed? Who are we accepting? So they're constantly accepting people. So the later that you wait, the fewer and fewer spots are available. So you're competing against uh, uh, less spots. It's like a game of um, musical chairs. You're getting later and later in the game and there's less chairs (laughs) to sit on. Exactly. So, okay. So, you learned your lesson. I think it's a great lesson for everybody. Be prepared. Hit, mm-hmm. hit the gate as soon as that, that gate flies open mm-hmm. and, and get everything in and done as soon as you can. I've been telling a few of my pre-med friends who are one year uh, younger than me to get started on their letters of rec like yesterday. Get started on it then because you'll be thanking yourself once June comes around. Yeah, that's great advice. So you, you didn't get any interviews. 
Not a single one. <laughs> so you, you didn't get any feedback on the interview trail. Did you get any feedback after you got uh, rejected? I, I don't like to say rejected. After you got not accepted. <laughs> um, after you got not accepted, did, did you try to figure out if there was anything else besides just being late? Um, yeah, so uh, the other main reason a lot of those counselors said I didn't get an interview was because I had no shadowing experience at the time. Um, so I, I lo- that's when like the entire journey where I talked to my friend who was pre-med who forward- forwarded me to his uh, doctors who he had shadowed. That's when that started. Okay. So I made sure to get more clinical experience. I thought before I had like a hundred and something hours of volunteering in my ho- local hospital's ICU. And I figured, you know, okay, I have a good idea and understanding of what a doctor's life is like. And I thought medical schools would say, see the same thing. Unfortunately they didn't. And, um, after I finished shadowing, I realized how wrong I wasn't with that logic. Um, because when you, when you're shadowing a doctor going around them, him or her throughout their entire day, you see things that you don't see when you're just, a volunteer restocking shelves or getting stuff for patients and nurses. So it's definitely eye opening. And if you're going to go into medicine, like you should hundred percent shadow someone. Okay. Did you find that the schools that you called and said, Hey, I applied, I didn't get in. Can you, can you run through my application with me? Tell me what I was missing. Did you find that schools were receptive to that phone call? Uh, most schools were. Um, in fact, a lot of them suggested that I schedule a uh, in-person meeting with them so I could go and actually talk with them in person and get feedback that way instead of just over the phone. Um, unfortunately, some of the schools that I applied to, like they're on the other side of the United States. So, so they offered you an interview afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, they were very receptive to it. Okay. Um, more than willing to help. Some schools, though, like they will say, we do not give feedback and other schools will explicitly say if you want feedback come talk to us okay so you did get some some people saying no we don't we don't talk about that yeah yeah they do they say that and sometimes it's actually listed like in when you go through the admissions page on any medical school's website they'll say somewhere in the frequently asked questions that you know we don't give feedback or something like that okay interesting dude do you know just off the top of your head, remembering, is there a difference between the level of the school, whether or not they're willing to sit down with you? Like, like the Harvards of the world don't want to talk to you because they got plenty of other people they can deal with. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is there that breakdown? Um, I'm not sure. I didn't, if it was there, I didn't notice it. Okay. I just thought I'd ask that one. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you didn't get into school. You graduate undergrad. What are you doing now? Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, how most people might know you. You have a big presence online. Let's let's talk about your blog and your online presence for a little bit. Sure. Um, so I blog at thebiopsy.com. Um, I started blogging in G- uh, January of 2012. I'm halfway through my first application cycle, in fact. Um, and the reason why I started blogging was just kind of as a personal learning platform. Uh, throughout my four years of college, I didn't feel like I had enough um, information or courses on the broader picture of medicine. Like we take 
you know, general bio, molecular bio, biochemistry, whatever bioengineering courses I took. And I kind of, I got, I have an understanding of the body at a molecular physiological level, but medicine is a lot more than that. There's, there's a whole bureaucracy that's incorporated into medicine as it is practiced in the United States today. And I felt like I didn't have an understanding of that. So that's how I started my blog and my Twitter presence as a way to kind of reach out to people, see what everyone's thinking and basically learn more. Okay. Do you have a general voice on your blog? Or are you just kind of writing any kind of specific topics that you think about? Uh, that's a good question. I, well, first off, I don't blog regularly, so to speak. There's no kind of timeline that I follow. Like once a week, I need to publish such and such story, mostly because I feel like I don't want to spam people. <laughs> with my reading, uh, with my writing, I should say. <clears throat> but, um, my, my voice is more like reactionary. If I read something on the news and I, if I have a kind of an opinion on that, I'll, I'll post about it. And it's specifically about medical news. I don't use this blog as a way to talk about how I love to cook or how, what my thoughts are on the San Francisco 49ers. Like this is purely medicine and, uh, my thoughts on that. Okay. <laughs> So you have your blog, you have your Twitter presence. What else are you doing this year or what else have you been doing to bolster your application mm -hmm. for this next time? And you're in the application process right now. Yes, I am. Okay. So what have you been doing? Obviously shadowing. Have you mm -hmm. been doing anything else to, to bolster that application? Uh, so when I took the year off, I decided to just do things that I didn't have the opportunity to do during undergrad. Um, so I made sure to keep busy. I know, you know, if you take a gap year, it's easy to slack off all the time because you have no academic pressure like you do in uh, college. So I decided to take classes and courses that I didn't have an opportunity to take at UCSD online through a company called Coursera. Um, you can take courses for free for major universities like Stanford, Harvard, University of Michigan, like big, well-known, uh, big, well-known academic names, all for free. And uh, you can get credit for it, too. So I'm taking courses in like the history of primary care, um, human computer interaction, uh, healthcare informatics, really diverse and really interesting topics for me. So that way I keep active uh, in, in an academic sense so that when medical school starts, I'm not kind of that the pressure doesn't hit me like a freight train, you know? Yeah. That's one thing I'm doing. And I wish, I wish I would have done that because my, <laughs> my three years off, I started medical school. I forgot how to study. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, apart from that, I'm also doing some advertising for my father's firm. So I have a few web skills like designing websites and stuff like that. So I'm making sure to keep busy by, basically bolstering my father's uh, my father owns a small business so i'm basically helping him uh do that and what else i'm also volunteering like habitat for humanity i'm going to start volunteering at my local hospital so just small things cool okay. okay so staying involved staying active staying scholastic exactly always learning that's good okay so let's run through the application this year you mm -hmm. you're you're in the middle of interviews at this point probably yeah i've had um 
11 interviews. Okay. You obviously, second time applying, you're a, a whiz at the AMCAST application. That's that's a whole beast in of itself. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, did you apply to any DO schools or was it strictly MD? I was considering applying to DO schools for a while. Um, personally, there is no diff- I don't see any difference between MD and DO apart from the name. Um, in fact, even the major organizations in medicine don't recognize the difference anymore. The AOA, which is the head uh, organization for osteopathic medicine and the ACGME uh, recently merged MD and DO residencies, which effectively makes them equivalent, not, not only in terms of residencies, but in terms of training and testing. So for the most part, there's no difference between DO and MD schools, apart from the name that gets appended to your last name after, after you uh, finish your four years there. So Do you I agree with that? that? Huh? Do you agree with that? Agree with? The, the merging of the ACGME and the AOA. You know, I, I, from <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> from people I've talked to, um, who've like, who are going into the DO profession, a lot of them have told me that the DOs they've talked to, this is kind of like down the grapevine story, but yeah. the DOs that they've talked to have said the way they practice is not all that different from how MDs practice these days. Uh, and the the main differentiating factor, the OMT, which is osteopathic manipulative technique, um, which DOs learn but MDs don't, um, is kind of not as frequently used as it used to be. So you're kind of seeing a merger of the two disciplines. And um, so DOs are becoming as, uh, I guess, as, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess they're just becoming equivalent, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I can give my opinion, but it doesn't really belong here. So, <laughs> um, okay. So how did you choose what schools you applied to? Because the primary application is, has a lot to do with stats. I made sure to look at schools that were out, basically where I was competitive at. Um, so I, you know, I had a good balance of like, reach schools and then places I was competitive at and then backup schools that I applied to. Um, and then how did you, how did you decide where you were? Did you use the, the MSAR? Yeah, the MSAR was my main, uh, reference book. Okay. Then I also kind of looked at like location. Would I be, would I be able to thrive there? Like if I went to some school in like Montana, I'm a California born and raised kid. So if I went to Montana for four years, I don't think I would do very well physically because it's the climate would be so different. So I kind of looked at where the school was, um, what they're known for. Like uh, I applied to Oregon health and sciences university and they're known for a real, they have a really strong primary care program and I'm interested in primary care. So that was kind of a match there. So when, whenever pre-med's applying to medical school, not only should you look at whether you're competitive or not, but like, do you think you could see yourself there in four years? Do they have the specialties you're interested in? Is it a good place to live? That kind of thing. Yeah. And for people that don't know, the MSAR, the Medical School Admissions Requirement book, is put out by the AAMC, which uh, they have a, a whole website dedicated to it. And it's, what, 15, 20 bucks or something, maybe. Yep. Uh, the book is a lot more expensive, but the book doesn't <laughs> have any of the good stuff anymore, apparently. 
So, oh, really? Yeah, the GPA and MCAT stuff, they, they got rid of it in the book. So oh. I think they might be phasing the book out if they're trying to, to get yeah. people away. But I'll have links to that stuff for people listening. Uh, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 14. You can go there and see all the links and uh, all the show notes for today. So you are in the middle of interviewing. Do you have any interviews left or have you interviewed? Uh, I still think there are possibilities of a few interviews coming up. Okay. Uh, I think most interview seasons end in March, um, some maybe April. So there's a chance, but like it's late February now and most interview invites go out a month in advance. So I'm guessing like I'm at the end of the interview season. Okay. So you go to medical school, let's say, let's say you get in this year. That's, that's what we're hoping for, right? Yep. You get in. What do you want to do with your life? That's a good question. I ask myself that every day. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I know at my, at, at the core of it all, I want to, I want to make sure I make a difference in a patient's life. And as cliche and as overused as that sounds, it's true. I mean, why else would you go into medicine? Um, to make it, lots of money, obviously. <laughs> well, medicine's changing, so you might want to. You might want to yes. take that back. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, like, like I said before, that story I had with the elderly patient in the hospital—that kind of making that kind of small difference in a patient's life every day would bring me great satisfaction. Um, so that's kind of like the difference I want to make and what I aim to do. Beyond that, I think there's a whole multitude of, or a whole preponderance of opportunities for you to get involved in medicine that's broader than just the scope of uh, patient care. Um, right now, medicine is going through a huge, did <clears throat> excuse me, right now medicine is going through a huge digital transformation. Um, you have all these new technologies that are coming into clinical practice at the point of care all the way up to the administration level. So you, like, there's a lot of tumult associated with this transition too. Um, people are saying, I don't like this technology or this technology is not good enough. If you're pre-med, you've probably heard a lot about how EHRs or EMRs are not interoperable. So there's whole, that whole issue. Um, and a lot of doctors, you get a lot of cynicism from doctors, especially online, when you hear them say like, you know, this is not going to work or this is a waste of time. <clears throat> and this is basically a roadblock to me, uh, practicing the medicine I want to with my patients. So when you're, I, my advice to pre-meds going forward is that, you know, as we enter this uh, medical arena with this whole new technological wave, you can see it as a challenge uh, towards uh, better patient care, or you can see it as an opportunity to innovate. And I think like the difference, the larger difference that I want to make is somehow enable uh, my practice or my hospital or wherever I'm working to use technologies to make patient care better. And um, I'm during my year off, I've had a couple of ideas that are spinning in my head. I've been fleshing them out. So hopefully in medical school, if I, if I get in, I can uh, basically make those a reality. Cool. Can't wait to see what those are. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see yourself continuing your online presence and using that moving forward either for the greater good of physicians or maybe just for your own practice, the greater good of your patients? Yeah. 
That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think, of course, I would keep on blogging uh, through medical school and through practice. Um, but <laughs> you think you have time. <laughs> I, there are a few medical school students online who have shown me that that is possible, but I can't. I probably won't be posting as frequently. Um, so going forward, I think I will continue blogging, but will I do it for my patients? Not necessarily. I don't think, um, I think clinical care should be kept in the office and not so much online. A lot of doctors find trouble with, um, prescribing or talking about medicine to patients online because there's a whole host of issues, ethical issues and legal issues that go along with that. Um, that are clearly defined in the clinic area, but kind of murky online. Um, a lot of doctors are kind of trying to hash those out to make it clear of what the boundaries are online, but like work is still ongoing. So for the most part, I think my messages on my blog will stay kind of not patient centric, but more medicine in general, um, kind of what is technology doing in medicine, what its role is, um, new ideas I have for about how to organize clinics or how to organize healthcare in general. So more holistic things and less patient health issues. Okay. So for the aspiring pre-med out there who might be interested in starting a web presence, for for you, did you find that having your blog and being on on Twitter did that come up at all in your application, or, or did it come up during your interviews at all? I think it depends on whether or not the pre med puts it in their application. I made it a point to actually put my uh, Twitter and my blog presence in my AMCAS application for my um, our admissions counselors to read. Uh, mainly because I feel the blog is kind of uh, a digital portfolio. Um, Dr. Brian Vardabedian, who is on Twitter and goes by Dr. Underscore V, um, is kind of a leader in this area of thinking because he is he talks a lot about how um, kind of digital streams of data from people who are applying to medical school might be a better indicator of their critical thinking abilities than just the AMCAS personal statement and your MCAT reading score would be. Because when you start a blog, it shows that one, you're engaged in medicine because you're, you know, you're looking at everything that medicine has to offer. And two, that you can, you can think and write well, because when you post these uh, blog posts online, people will come to it, they'll comment on it, they'll retweet it or rebroadcast it to their audience. And, um, as soon as you kind of start that critical dialogue, your, your writing skills improve, your thinking and critical thinking abilities improve. I think you just, I, I honestly see no downside to blogging, assuming that you're, you know, you're professional in what you write and how you write it. Okay. So, and it did come up during interviews because a lot of my interviewers asked me, you know, tell me about your blog. It was kind of obvious that they didn't take the time to read the blog, and I don't blame them because you know they're busy people. But they were genuinely curious about it, and they wanted to ask, like, what are the advantages that you derived from that experience? Cool. All right. So it it might have some benefits. It opens up some dialogue with the interviewer. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, like you said, keep it professional. Yeah, it's really important to keep it professional. Right now, most doctors don't like the idea of using Twitter. Um, it's a very small segment of of the medical populations that's actually using Twitter and blogging. 
Um, you get so you see the image of Twitter and blogging in um, the established uh, medical fields mind as something like like you're just on Twitter to share pictures of your breakfast or something. Kind of you know basically like what a preteen would do with Twitter. Like you don't want to do that if you're gonna if you're gonna use this in your application. You want to keep it professional and um, keep it up to date and keep it relevant. So I have a just a, a random follow up question for that. Yeah. In social media, obviously there's there's all this that all this talk about how admissions committees are looking at your Facebook profile and your Twitter profile. Yeah. I, I'm assuming you, being the professional that you are, didn't worry about that. Um, did you ever think about like changing your name on Facebook so they couldn't find you during the application process, or did you hear about others doing that? Oh, um, <laughs> the moment June rolled around, a lot of my friends had different names on Facebook. So <laughs> I, I was considering doing it too, but then I realized I personally, have, my Facebook page is super boring. I have nothing on there. So I was like, whatever, they can find me if they want to. They're not going to find anything on here. So I kept my name the same. Um, but I know a lot of people kind of like shut down their social media presence and kind of have like a scorched earth policy when it comes to everything that they ever posted online just goes away. And, you know, going forward, I think it's going to be kind of odd if you don't have some kind of presence online, because the first thing I do when I hear about someone in the news or someone I met online is Google them. Like, are they online? Do they have some kind of reputable, reputable presence that I can refer to? And if I can't find anything, it's like, are you a ghost or like, can I trust you or something like that? Um, so I think having a social media presence, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or a blog will actually go a long way towards making you more, um, trustworthy. Okay. So let's finish up with, uh, one piece of advice you think that the best piece of advice that you ever got during your pre-med process to, to get you to where you are now. God, what was the best piece? Oh, it's kind of cliche, <laughs> but um, it was basically believe in yourself. Um, medicine is a field where you'll be tested all the time, not only in terms of, you know, written tests where you have to give answers, but emotionally, mentally, you'll be tested and your resolve will be tested. And if you don't have that faith in yourself to, and, that, and that faith in your dream, you're not going to be able to make it. Um, especially during this time when medicine is changing and kind of everything is unknown. Um, so just believe in yourself. If you're a pre-med, if you don't believe in yourself, especially when it comes to the MCAT, when I, I had to take the MCAT twice, um, the first time I didn't score as well. And the second time I got the 33, um, the main difference between those two periods was the fact that I believed in myself the second time because I basically convinced myself that I knew everything that the MCAT could throw at me. And I did whatever it took to convince myself of that, and the results paid off. So whatever you do, just believe in yourself. Great advice. Where can people follow you? I am on Twitter at The Biopsy and online at thebiopsy.com. All right, folks, that's the interview. Like I said before, go find Rohit at thebiopsy.com or on Twitter at thebiopsy. Tell him you heard him, heard him on the podcast today and tell him what a great job he's doing with his writing at thebiopsy.com. One thing that Rohit forgot to mention 
was that during his gap year this year, he started a not-for-profit in his hometown that promotes community dialogue through debates on topics of national importance. He's got two debates under his belt, working on a third debate on abortion sometime in April. That should be pretty interesting. Always a, a hot topic. So another great thing that Rohit is doing to kind of stay active, stay current, and show the admissions committees that he's actively involved in the community, actively trying to better himself, which everybody would like as a a physician, those kind of qualities. So he forgot to mention it during the interview. I asked him to give us a brief snippet about it. It's um, the website for... His organization, his organization will be in the show notes. It's greatcvdebate.wix.com. Again, it'll be in the show notes, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 14. I hope you learned a lot about some of the mistakes to avoid during the application process. I heard you, I hope you got some great tips on shadowing, some great tips uh, basically about being a pre-med in general. Rohit shared a lot of great information. If you got some use out of the podcast today, I would encourage you to go into iTunes and give us a rating. When you rate us, that allows other pre-med students out there to find us and to get the same kind of information that, that you're getting. So if you can go into iTunes, give us a rating. Five stars would be awesome if you think we deserve it. If you have any questions, like always, give us a call, 617-410-6747. We'll play your question right here on the podcast and give it an answer so everybody can learn from your question. Again, I hope the information provided will help better guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Make sure to join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 